that movie right there. Um, the clip you just saw, you had Buddy the Elf, who grew up at the North Pole with the real Santa Claus, was there at a mall, and he realizes that the Santa that was there was a cheap fraud, that he was a fake, and he smelled like beef and cheese, and he looked out at all those people and this, these innocent children, and he couldn't stand the thought of them trusting some fraud Santa Claus as opposed to the real one, so he exposed him. So, so why do I show you that clip? Well, one, because I just love the movie, and I think that clip's hilarious. But, but two, and more importantly, is because I think that this is what Ecclesiastes, the book that we're going to be studying this semester, sets out to do. That just as Buddy exposed the, the fake Santa Claus, Ecclesiastes sets out to expose the cheap frauds that we tend to put our trust and our hopes in. And so that's where we're going tonight. That's where we're going for this semester. Um, and so I'm just going to start off by saying Ecclesiastes is not necessarily the most fun book to read at times. Ecclesiastes hurts oftentimes, that it's kind of painful to, to read at times. But what we know to be true is sometimes pain is necessary. Sometimes it, it is good. Like we've probably known people, or maybe you've had it where you had some sort of injury and the doctor had to like break it to fix it so it could set correctly. Or I think of um, in the storms a couple years ago with Hurricane Michael, we knew some people down in Florida who had houses that were absolutely destroyed. They were totaled out, and so they were still kind of standing, but you couldn't live in them. And so they had to actually bulldoze the houses so that they could build them back uh, better or stronger. Um, and so we know that sometimes pain is necessary. And so Ecclesiastes sets out to do that. It, it sets out to break us down, to bring us to a point of despair so that it can then build us back up and show us true hope. And so that's what we're going to try to do tonight. But I want to go ahead and warn you that tonight, uh, this message, about a good 75% of it is going to be quite depressing. Like It is not going to be cheerful. It's going to be pretty uh, depressing. But if you will hang with me until the end, I assure you that we will get to see the, the true message of hope that Ecclesiastes offers. So if you um, have your Bibles or you see the paper is printed out for you as well, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 1 tonight. And there in the first verse it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And so we get a little insight to, to who wrote Ecclesiastes. So it was written by this author who recorded the words of the teacher or the preacher. And that Hebrew word there is, is used for assembly, so it's, it's someone who assembles, which is why it gets um, translated oftentimes as teacher or preacher. And traditionally, who we typically think wrote Ecclesiastes is King Solomon. King Solomon, um, although it doesn't say it ex explicitly that he wrote this, um, we know that King Solomon is the, the son of King David, and that uh, Solomon, when he asked God, he asked God for wisdom, and God said, I will give you this wisdom. He ends up blessing him with all kinds of, of prosperity and wealth as well. And we know throughout uh, Solomon's li or life, though, that he accumulated all this wealth. He accumulated a ton of wives and concubines, and he eventually strayed further and further from the Lord. But what the traditional belief is that Solomon wrote this at the end of his life when he looked back on all that he had done and looked at all that he endeavored, all that he had acquired, and he, uh, in a heart of repentance, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Now, there's other people who would say that maybe it's not necessarily Solomon, but maybe it was a um, descendant of King David, another one, because sometimes some of the, the circumstances and some of the verses, you're like, I don't know if that's Solomon. Um, and then people like Tim Mackey would also say that maybe this was written years after Solomon in a Solomon-like persona, that this is someone who resembles Solomon, but they didn't write it to trick anyone because everyone knew it wasn't, but it was writing from a place of Solomon. Regardless, here's the point. It was written by someone who was like Solomon or by Solomon. It was written by someone who had unbelievable knowledge and unbelievable power. And it was this person evaluating this world, evaluating the life of mankind, and then saying, here's what I see. Here's my thoughts. So it'd be kind of like someone like a Bill Gates, right? Someone who's really smart, really powerful, wealthy, has all kinds of resources. Him looking back at life, looking at what he sees and saying, Here, here's the wisdom that I see from this life from mankind. So the author actually tells us his conclusion in the first few verses. He doesn't wait, he doesn't hide the ball and say, then here's what I concluded. He tells us in verses two and three what he finds after looking out at life. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He says, I've looked out at everything. I've looked out at this life and all that it has to offer. And here's what I've found. It is vanity. Some of your translations might say it's meaningless. Uh, the, the Hebrew word gives a little bit more depth to it. The Hebrew word is hevel. And hevel is smoke or vapor. And so he says the, the, the life of mankind, all that this world has to offer under the sun is hevel of hevels. It's smoke of smoke. And he says hevel of hevels to show that it's the greatest form of it. So like if you see in scripture, king of kings, you know that's the, the king above all kings. When you see the Song of Solomon, another work of King Solomon, you know it's the Song of Songs, or the Song of Songs, you know it's the Song of Above All Songs. The Holy of Holies is the most holy place. So here, he says, life under the sun is hevel of hevels, smoke of smoke. It's, it's the most hevel that it can be. This word under the sun is another one that we're going to see all throughout this series as we read through Ecclesiastes, under the sun. And what he's saying here, under the sun, he's saying is this is the existence of mankind. When I'm looking at it from man's perspective, when I'm looking at life um, with, with nothing else to offer, um, this is what I see. Or uh, Tim Mackey at the Bible Project would say that this is life outside of Eden, outside of the Garden of Eden, man's existence. And so he says, when I look at life under the sun, when I look at man's existence, it's as hevel as it possibly could be. It is smoke. And, and this word hever, hevel, what is, it, what is he trying to drive home here? What's, what's the imagery that he's, he's trying to drive home? Well, I think it's, it's layered. There's multiple meanings that he's going to use throughout it. Um, for, for one, think about smoke and how it's, it's fleeting. It's temporary, right? When, when smoke's in the air, it's here for a moment, and then it's gone the next. It kind of dissipates and goes away. And so when he looks out at life and the things of this life, he says, it's only here for a moment. That mankind, we are only here for a moment, that the happiness that we experience in this life is only here momentarily. It's fleeting. It's not lasting. Satisfaction from the, the uh, possessions that are acquired, it's, it's only momentary. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's hevel. Another way, though, if you think about smoke, you think about uh, vapor, is it has the appearance that it has form. Like, I, I can see it, 
but when I try to grab it, there's nothing there, right? When I try to grab the thing that I see, I, I can't quite grab it. And so what he's, he's saying here is in this life, it's going to give the illusion that, that there's something, but in reality, it's just empty. It's meaningless. It's, it's pointless. And then I think the final layer of it is if you think of smoke, when you are in a heavy fog or in smoke, you can kind of make out figures and forms, but it's kind of confusing because you can't really see with clarity. And sometimes it gets so bad that when you're in smoke or you're in fog, you can get disoriented and turned around and you can't tell up from down, left from right. You are kind of confused and you are, are questioning things. And so that's what he's going to say. When he looks at this life, he's like, it doesn't, I don't quite get it. It's kind of confusing. I, I see people who do the right thing and then bad things come. And then I see people who do bad things and good things happen to them or I see people who, who work hard and they get fired, and then I see the person who's lazy and they get promoted. It doesn't quite work the way that I thought it should work. That sometimes it does, but other times it doesn't. It's, it's heavy. It's confusing. It's an enigma. And so that's the conclusion that he comes to when he looks at this life. And then he's going to describe uh, this existence under the sun in, in the next several verses. So picking up in verse 4, he says this. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow there again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So what's he saying here? He's looking at life. And he's saying it's so monotonous that there's just this repetitious cycle that kind of goes on and on and on. People come, generations come, and then people go and, and generations go. But then time marches on and on and on. It continues on. The sun, after they, after they die, after they, they leave this earth, the sun rises and then it sets again. The, the wind continues on on its circuits. The streams, they flow into the seas, but it never stops. It's never full. It continues to flow day after day after day. This world goes on and on, and it is just a dull and repetitious existence. It's, there's nothing even really new. That Even as technology changes, it's really kind of the same old stuff, just in new forms. And so when we think about this, when we hear these words, when we read these words, we kind of get it, Right? We kind of look at the cycles of life and we're like, yeah, it really does feel kind of repetitions. It feels a little monotonous as we read these words. And if you really think about just the average life, it's like you're born, your parents then raise you and they start preparing you for school and you go to school and you make some friends and you make some enemies, but you make some friends and you enjoy different habits and you enjoy different um, things that you can do and different sports and then you get older and you get ready to go to some more school and middle school. And middle school is terrible. And if it wasn't terrible for you, then you were the one making it terrible for other people. And middle school is bad, and, but you lose some friends and you gain some friends. And you get ready and you're like, I can't wait till I get a little bit older so then I can go to high school and I can have some freedom. 
and you get to high school, and they're like, hey, your grades actually matter now, so you should really focus on that. And you're a little bit older, but you still don't have all the freedom. You're like, if I could just drive, things would be so much better. And you can't wait to get your license, so then you can go hang out with your friends and do things that you want to do. And you finally get your license, and you can do a little bit more, but you're still kind of restricted by your parents. And so you get towards the end of high school, and it's been fun, and you like some of your friends at least, but you're ready to move on, go to the next season of life, get out of your parents' house. You're ready to go on your own and do even more school that you've been getting ready for this whole time. And then you finally get out of the house, you graduate, you lose a whole bunch of friends, but you keep up with the ones that you want to anyways. And you get to college, you make a whole bunch of new friends, you get to college, you, you do more and more school, you start making your own decisions, you have a lot of freedom, it's great. But then by the end of it, people are asking you, like, hey, what are you going to do with your life? And you're like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I have no clue. And you get that question 100 times over, so you come up with some standard answer just to throw back at everyone else. But still in the same sense, you love college, but you're still ready to leave college. And so you're ready to go to the next season of life. And you graduate college, and you're like, I'm just glad I can finally have some income and not be a broke college student anymore. And so you go, you find some job that pays you a little bit of money, and you're like, man, this is great. I have some money in my bank account. But then you realize with that job comes bills and other responsibilities, and so the money leaves the bank account pretty quickly. You then start doing this adult life thing. You have different responsibilities, and you're like, I'm kind of ready to settle down and find a spouse. And so you stress, like, will I find a spouse? I hope I can. You start stressing about it. You finally find someone. You settle down with that person, and it's great. And then eventually you're like, okay, it's time for us to have some kids. And so you have the two and a half kids that you've wanted your whole life. You have these kids. And then you start raising them, and then you send them to school so that they can get ready for more school. And, and your time goes into them. Your energy and money goes even smaller. And so then you keep raising these kids. And all the while, you're doing all these little monotonous chores all along the way, like you're doing laundry that you, you put up and you clean up, and then you're like, oh, I've got to do it again because it's not finished. Or you do the dishes, and the dishes aren't done because you, you put them up, and then you have to do them again over and over and over again. You raise your kids. You love your kids so much, but they still drive you crazy. And by the time they turn 16, you're terrified because this little baby that you were rocking is now driving. So you're like, oh, my gosh, what is this? And then by their senior year, you're like kind of sad, but you're also ready just to kick them out of the house. So you kick them out of the house, and you're like, man, this is kind of great. We're empty nesters. We have the kids out of the house, but they're still on the payroll. And so after four years, you're like, oh, my gosh, what are you going to do with your life? Is that major actually going to pay you money? I don't know. And you question them. They give you attitude. And then eventually they land, okay, they get out of college, and you're like, man, I have all this income with no kids. This is fantastic. Let me retire. You decide to retire from the job you've been working your whole life, and you retire. They throw you this nice party, and then the next day they replace you, and the business goes on like you never left. And you and your spouse have some extra time, and so with this extra time, you travel, you see the world some, and you enjoy some grandkids that you have at this point, and then your health starts breaking down a little bit, so you go see a doctor, and then you see more doctors and more doctors and more doctors. And you're like, man, I wish I was young again. I, I wish I was, had my youth once again. They don't really know what they have. And, and even if this is not your existence, if, if yours varies from a little bit to a lot to this life, at the end of the day, the great equalizer of death will come, and you will die. And after you die, people won't remember you. The world will forget you, and life will continue on. The very next day, as the, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, it says a generation comes and a generation goes, and the sun will rise and the sun will set again. The streams will flow into the water, the wind will continue on its circuits, and you will be forgotten because from dust you were created to dust you return. And, and if you don't believe me, I can 
I think I can prove it here. Raise your hand if you know the name of just one of your great or one of your grandparents. Raise your hand if you know the name of one of your grandparents. If you don't have to ask anybody, you know it. Keep your hand raised if you know the name of one of your great grandparents. You don't have to ask anybody. You already know. You know them by name. Okay. Try your great great grandparents. Know the name. Don't have to look at ancestry.com or anything like that. All right, great, great, great grandparents. Anybody? Wow, you see that? You will be forgotten within more than likely four or five generations, but probably less than that. And you're like, oh, maybe not. You know, we remember some people like, look at old George Washington. We have many, many, many years ago. But I, I hate to break it to you. You probably won't be like George Washington. And even if you were, why don't you ask him how it feels to be remembered? You can't because he's dead. <laughs> this is our life. The dead are forgotten and the world will continue on in its monotony. And that is quite depressing, is it not? Just wait, it gets worse. <laughs> Continuing on in verses 12, or in verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's sad, right? He looks out at the world and he sees the monotony of life. He sees the, the hevel of hevels. And he's like, well, maybe there's something I can do to add value to my life. Maybe there's something I can do to add purpose and, and to be satisfied and content in this life. Maybe there's something I can do to bring clarity to the confusion of life. And so he, he sought for anything that would bring him contentment and joy and peace and purpose and value. And so he set his heart on whatever he wanted under the sun to try to fix this. But he says, all I found was unhappiness and confusion and frustration and sorrow. It's hevel. A smoke, a vapor. It's, it's chasing the wind. And, and here's the thing. He had the resources. He had the, the means to pursue all these different things. And so he says, I set my heart to pleasure. I said, you know what? I'm going to do what makes me happy, when it makes me happy. And he had the power to actually do it. He set out to do it. He set out to pursue pleasure. He gave his heart whatever he desired. He, he had the means to get it, and he took on the mentality of, you know, Ariana Grande who says, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. Yeah, I want it, I got it. 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 You've got to love the artistic genius of our day. But he denied himself no pleasure, and then listened to the result. He says, then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had experienced in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He talks about all the servants he had gotten, all the, the pools and the, the gardens that he had gotten, how he, all the possessions, how he indulged himself with wine, trying to satisfy this desire in his heart. 
And the result, he said, laughter is mad and pleasure, what use is it? It's hevel. It's a chasing the wind. So he says, okay, that didn't work, so let me pursue after, after work, after success, after money. And so he threw himself into work, into achievement and financial success, but it had the same conclusion. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied, nor he who loves wealth with his income, and the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He says, money will not satisfy you, it will not bring you contentment, and you're not even, even those who have money, they're not, they're not even going to be able to sleep because of the anxieties that come with, with possessions. And he says, it's all vanity anyways, I've seen people with money lose it all. I've seen them make a bad business choice and they lose it all. Or I've seen someone who had it all and then when they went to die, they had to leave it to a son who just didn't care and wasted it and squandered it. And so it's, it's meaningless. It's hevel. It's chasing the wind. And so he says, I went to knowledge. I went to wisdom. I went to righteousness. I went to, to see if wisdom would help me. And he says, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He says, our minds are finite, and we can't even understand all these things, so it's pointless to pursue. And he said, even though when I did the right thing, sometimes life didn't work out the way I thought it would. So what's the point of pursuing wisdom? What's the point of pursuing righteousness? It's, it's hevel. It's chasing the wind. And so he sought after it all, and he had the power and the ability to achieve whatever it was he wanted to achieve. And his conclusion was, it's all meaningless. It's hevel. It's... It's chasing the wind. And, and the thing is, again, we kind of get this. If you look at your own life, if you are really honest, we're never truly satisfied with anything. We are always looking to that next thing, that, that next season, that, that next thing in life that we want. We think, if I could just find the person I'm going to marry, or even if I don't have to find them now, if I just knew who it was and knew when it would happen, I'd be good. Or if I had this job or I knew what kind of career path I was supposed to take. Or if I had financial stability and I wasn't going paycheck to paycheck. Or if my parents would just stay healthy and I knew that they would be safe and my friends would be safe. If I had this certain GPA and I knew I could make these grades and get into this school. If I had this, if I had that, it never ends. We are never truly satisfied. We can chase these what ifs all our lives and we would never get them. But even if we would get them, they don't satisfy us. When we get them, they satisfy us for a moment, and then they're gone. It's fleeting. It's hevel of hevels chasing the wind. And you think, well, maybe if I had power and I had money, like, give me a few million dollars, and I, we'll see it. We'll see if it can work. But, but here's the thing. We know this. We see our culture today. Like, you see people who have it all, who have money, fame, and fortune, who end up taking their own lives because life is so depressing. They chase all these pleasures and it's still not enough. We see it, people who have make, reached what we would say the pinnacle of success, like when Tom Brady in an interview a few years back with 60 Minutes after he had won multiple Super Bowls, he was, they were talking to him and he was like, man, there's got to be more than this. And he was at the top. Or you think of uh, John Rockefeller. Um, he was a businessman uh, several years ago. And if his net worth today would be worth $418 billion, and they asked him, how much money is enough money? And his reply was, just a little bit more. It's not enough. It's not satisfying. It's hevel of hevels. And he says it's chasing the wind. And this, this phrase, chasing the wind, I think it's got a layered meaning here. There's a little bit more depth. 
So, so in one sense, it's exactly what we would think, that chasing the wind kind of frames in our mind exactly the way we, we think, that uh, we ch- if you chase after the wind, you can't get it, right? If you pursue it and strive after it, you'll never actually obtain it. You can't actually get it. It's elusive. And so what he's saying is, is mankind's pursuits to fill this void, it's like chasing the wind. They'll never actually get it. They're chasing something that they can't have. But I think there's a deeper layer here that I think is really, really cool. And the phrase in Hebrew, I think, carries a little bit more depth than we realize. So if if you look at the first word chasing, uh, a way to understand it is is longing for. And that's why they translate it as chasing or striving or grasping. Because when you long for something, when you desire something, you run after it, you move towards it. So it's longing for. And then the wind, that word is the Hebrew word ruach. Ruach. And this word, it's translated all throughout scripture as wind, but there's actually some other deeper meanings there as well. So if you look to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, the very first two sentences of the Bible, we see this word when it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When it says the spirit of God, that word spirit is ruach. It's, it's the wind, the spirit, the breath of God is what it's sometimes translated as. And we see it later on as well in a few verses later in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3 verse 8 it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So that cool of the day, that, that phrase there. In some translations, is, is translated as the breeze of the day, the breeze of the evening. And it's translated that way because it's the word ruach. And so you hear Adam and Eve, they're, they're sitting there and they hear the wind, the breeze, the breath of God. They, they associate that with his presence and they hid. And they hid because they had rebelled against God. That they had chosen self-rule over his rule. That they had rejected him and rebelled against him. And so they hid from him when he came. And where once, where they they walked hand in hand with God, where they once were in the very presence, the breath, the spirit of God, God cast them out of Eden because of their sin. Cast them away from the presence of God. And this, I think, is the underlying tone of the phrase, chasing the wind. When he looks at mankind and mankind's pursuits, he says, they are longing for what only the breath, the wind, the presence of God, the spirit of God can bring them. They're longing for something that, that they can't actually have because they have this deep thirst that can only be satisfied by God himself, but their wickedness has cast them from his presence and rendered that thirst unquenchable. And so they, they chase after all these things, hoping to obtain significance, hoping to obtain joy and peace and comfort, hoping to achieve contentment, but they always fail. And this is our existence. This is our lives. We are born, we live, we feel this emptiness, and we strive to fill the void in our hearts with all these different things, but nothing we do ever satisfies the thirst, and then we die. And we are forgotten, and the world continues on without us. And if this is all there is, then that is unbelievably depressing. It's unbelievably depressing. And if you, you see that and agree with that, or even if you feel that, 
then you are exactly where the book of Ecclesiastes wants you to be. You're exactly where it wants you to be so that you can now hear the good news of Ecclesiastes. So in verses um, 13 through 14 of chapter 12, the very end of Ecclesiastes is when the author is concluding his thoughts after looking at everything, after evaluating everything. This is what he said. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so his concluding thoughts, when he looks at everything, he says the whole duty of man, the whole purpose of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. To fear God, to have a deep reverence and honor and awe and love of God. And from that, keep his commandments. Walk in obedience. He says, we do this because we know that God will come and he will judge every deed. Good and bad, he will judge it. Uh, Secret or revealed, he will judge it. He will come, he will bring clarity to the hevel, to the confusion of life. He will clear up the smoke. And every wicked and foolish act will be punished. Every wrong will be made right. That is the promise of Ecclesiastes. But it's not quite good news to us yet, right? It's not good news because of what Ecclesiastes teaches in chapter 8, verse 11, that the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That the bend of every one of our hearts is away from God. That we by nature, are unrighteous, that God has a standard of perfection and none of us meet that standard. And so we are not righteous, we are unrighteous, we are wicked, we are evil, we deserve punishment. And so if God is coming to judge the wicked, this is terrifying. But we read Ecclesiastes in light of the full counsel of Scripture. We read it in the whole counsel of Scripture because what we see in the beginning when when God cast mankind from his presence, from his, his spirit, his breath, that he doesn't leave them there to their own devices. He doesn't leave them to be cursed and leave them to die. He moves towards them. That throughout the whole narrative of Scripture, we see this word ruach, his, his spirit, his breath, his presence, moving towards the people of God. He moves towards them in, in the book of Noah. We see him moving towards them in, in the life of Moses as he redeems the people of Israel through plagues and through great winds that separate the seas. He brings them to salvation. We see them uh, even coming upon different people, his spirit filling different people throughout the narrative of Scripture, giving them wisdom and power to accomplish things, to, to speak and prophesy on his behalf. And with these prophets, the one, when they were filled with his spirit, they prophesied of a Savior who was to come. They prophesied of a Savior who was to come and to redeem and make right the world. And they said that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. He'd be different from the other prophets. And it happened exactly as they said. This day did come where Jesus, truly God and truly man, stepped down into his broken creation. And he lived the perfect life. He was righteous in every single way. And then at the end of his life, he was taken and he was hung on a cross to die. He hung on the cross to be a sacrifice and atonement for the sins and the unrighteousness of the world. And there he drank the wrath of God's judgment on the cross. And on the cross he died. And his lifeless body was taken and placed into a grave. And it seemed as all hope was lost that the great equalizer of death had won and been victorious over him as well. 
but we know that that's not how the story goes. That God breathed life into him and raised him from the dead. And with that life, with that resurrection, it was victory over sin and victory over death. And the promise was that if we would humble ourselves and turn to him, believing and trusting in who he is and what he did on the cross, believing and trusting that God raised him from the dead and believing and trusting it was done for us, then the promise is that our sins are washed away. That, That our unrighteousness becomes the righteousness of Christ. And we promise life with him, life eternal. And, and before Jesus ascended into heaven and left, his disciples were sad that they didn't want him to leave. And he said, hey, it's good that I go. It's good that I leave because I'm sending to you someone else. I'm sending you an advocate, a helper. I'm sending to you my spirit. And what we see in Acts 2.8, when the disciples are gathered at Pentecost, a mighty wind comes through the place. And it says that his disciples were filled with his Holy Spirit. And the word wind, the spirit there, is this Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word in the Septuagint, uh, ruach. It's the same word that this presence that we had been cast out of from the beginning now dwells and fills the hearts of his people. That the Christian is filled with the very breath and spirit of God. And so what that means is that no matter what the Christian faces in this life, whether good or bad, when when life is confusing and frustrating and just difficult, that the Christian, because of the spirit and the breath of God within them, has joy and peace and satisfaction beyond belief, beyond comprehension, because the presence of God resides within them. And this presence of God, this Holy Spirit, is a guarantee that there will be a day when Christ will return and receive his bride, And he'll take his bride back and usher him into the presence of God for all eternity. Where we will be back dwelling in the presence, the the spirit, the breath of God forever and ever and ever. Where we will have joy and peace everlasting. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes is driving us towards. It tells us in, um, in 8 verses 12 through 13 that though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that I will be well with the, it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, for he does not fear God. So what he says is, is what I know to be true is that those who fear God, we, we know that those who fear God through Christ, that it will be well with them. That because when God the judge comes and judges them, He will not judge them according to their deeds. He judges them according to the deeds and the work of Christ. But he says, for the wicked, for those who do not fear God, that judgment is coming and they will be held accountable for every every word uttered, every act done. That they will be judged according to their deeds. And so for for those of you who would fall into that category of, of having not trusted Jesus, my hope and my prayer for you is that Studying this word, studying Ecclesiastes, hearing this word, I hope that it breaks you. I hope it just brings you to a place of complete despair. I hope that as you look at the futility of life under the sun and, and you, you believe and realize that, that everything you try and do will end up leaving you empty, I hope and I pray that it, it breaks you, but I I hope and pray that it doesn't leave you broken. 
Because that's not the intent. The intent is to break you, but it's not to leave you broken. It's, it's to get you to a place where you can finally see the hope that you have in Christ. So if you've come to the end of your rope and you are in a place of desperation, you are exactly where you need to be to come under the hope of the gospel. And so my hope and my prayer is that in your desperation, you would turn and trust Jesus. Believing and trusting in who he is and what he did on the cross. Believing and trusting that God raised him from the dead and it was done on your behalf. And know that when, when you do that, that you will receive the righteousness of Christ. So that when God comes to judge, he doesn't judge you by your deeds. He judges you by the finished work of Jesus. And know that when you do this, the very breath and the, the spirit of God will fill you. And give you a joy that surpasses everything you could ever comprehend. A peace beyond belief that you will be satisfied and have a contentment that is unachievable in any other way. That the craving of your heart will be satisfied. Uh, St. Augustine, the theologian, says, You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so my hope and prayer is that you would let the restlessness of your heart find its rest in Christ. Now, for, for the Christian, for, for the many of you who do follow Jesus, uh, the question you have to ask yourself is, is there an area of my life or are there areas of my life that are not trusting in and resting in the sufficiency of Jesus? Are there areas of my life where I have been chasing the wind, chasing things that are temporary, chasing things that will not satisfy? And in verse 11 of, of chapter 12, it the author talks about these words being like goads with nails. And a goad is a herding tool used to poke and prod livestock back into the right direction. And so he says, this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to do for you. This is what the word of God is meant to do for you. It's meant to, to poke you and prod you that when you go astray, when you chase these other paths, it's meant to, to guide you back into the fold. To bring you back to the path of fearing the Lord and trusting him and walking in obedience. And it hurts but it, it's from the mercy of a good shepherd who knows what's best for you, who knows where you find true contentment in life. And so, so where are you chasing the wind? Maybe it's in some relationship, some boyfriend, some girlfriend that you've kind of been seeking to find your joy and your peace and, and significance and contentment in, the things that you already have in Christ. Or, or maybe it's, it's school and grades and, and it's you trying to achieve things. Maybe it's a friend group, even a Christian community that you've elevated to the place of God in your life in hopes to, to find status and significance and peace and security. Whatever it may be, maybe it's pleasure that you're seeking after. You just, you've been going down a path saying, I'm going to do what I feel like doing. Whatever it may be, my hope is that the words of Ecclesiastes will goad you back into the fold. That will lead you back to the path of fearing the Lord and a path of obedience, the, the place where you're going to find true joy, true peace, security, significance, and contentment. And so, so here's how the Christian's supposed to read Ecclesiastes. Here's how we're supposed to read it. We, we read Ecclesiastes, we read the teacher's words, and we say, yeah, I agree. I get that. I see that, and I agree that if this were all that there was, it's, it's pointless. That it is fleeting. It is confusing and frustrating that it, it's ultimately just empty and meaningless. But praise God for Jesus. 
Thank you, thank you, God, for Jesus. That in him, when my life feels foggy and confusing and frustrating, I trust that you see clearly and you are working it and you are sovereign over it. I, I, I thank you so much for Jesus for the contentment and the peace that I have in you. I thank you so much for Jesus that, that though uh, things come and go and though I will one day breathe my last breath in this earth, that in you, Jesus, I have life eternal. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. And so, so the words of the teacher, yes, they're meant to break us, but they're not meant to leave us broken. They're meant to show us what life would be like apart from Jesus. And, and oh, how sweet the love of Jesus is when we see what life would be like without him. And so this book, it, it can be depressing at times, but ultimately we're supposed to read this book and set it down and have our hearts just stirred for Christ. To, to say, God, thank you so much. Lord, you are glorious, you are holy. Let it stir our love and let it fill us with actually joy and peace to, as we admire his sovereignty and his goodness and his mercy. And as we look at this life and this monotony, we stop, we pause, we breathe, breathe in and breathe out. We feel our lungs filling with the wind and let it exhale. And we say, thank you so much for the gift of your breath, Lord, for the gift of your spirit and your presence for filling me. That gives me purpose. That gives me value. That gives me contentment and peace that nothing else can bring. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus.